What is up, plant people? Hey, today's Friday, which is weird, but it's the 26th of February, 2021, and we're back with the Planthropology Podcast, the show that dives into lives, careers, and ambitions of some really cool plant people to find out what makes them tick, what keeps them coming back for more. Hey, you know, I mentioned it's Friday. Uh, oh, by the way, I'm Vikram Baliga. I'm your host. I do the thing. Whatever. Uh, this is going to be a little chaotic, and I'm not even sorry. So I mentioned it's Friday. It's normally Tuesday. It was supposed to be Tuesday when this came out, but we had like the biggest ice storm in decades in Texas, or the biggest, I guess, uh, freeze and ice storm and snowstorm and everything else in Texas in decades last week. And because of that, all my stuff that was supposed to be last week got pushed this week, and this week got crazy. And so this episode is not coming out Tuesday, it's coming out Friday. And it's about, well... Well, not not just beer or carbonated canned beverages, but drinks in general and plant-based drinks at that. So um, I put a poll up on Twitter a while back asking what um, y'all wanted to hear out of this month's installment of the Plants and World Traditions series. And overwhelmingly, y'all voted for drinks around the world. Now, this is not just alcohol. We're talking about all kinds of beverages, all kinds of stuff. It should be a lot of fun. Um, and I also asked uh, earlier in the week, this was oh over the weekend, actually, end of last week, um, what some of y'all's favorite plant-based beverages were. And I was thinking, you know, like usual, I would get three or four responses and they'd be great. And I, I think I promised shout outs thinking there would be three or four responses. Um, there were, I think like 43 responses, which was really awesome. I appreciate y'all being involved and being a part of this community. I've got the best Twitter community. And I said, I was going to give shout outs. And by God, I'm going to give shout outs. So if you don't want to hear me list list off a whole bunch of um, Twitter handles, maybe skip the next 30 to 60 seconds of show. And uh, when we come back from me reading a whole bunch of names, um, I'm going to play some music at you. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about plants and world traditions, and we're going to talk about beverages. So, again, this is your cue. If you don't want to hear me read names for a while, go ahead and skip forward a bit. But thank you so much. Bewildered Par, Farmer Froberg, Believing Bazaar, Jenny Japaname, Waffles underscore Mario, Cretans Guild, Jungle Jim Queen, TP Roasters, J.A. Landon, I Heart Vegan, J.A. Landon again, Chari Vanilla, Vixter 55, Dish Podcast, oh hey Sean, Virology underscore BB, BB Bloxburg, Jess You Can, Murder Bird Pod, S Yanok Coco TX, which by the way, Stephen Yanok is an upcoming guest, so stay tuned for his episode. Uh, Mariette Missy, Ali GH7, Unco Dion, JDGX321, Mind Chicken, Vivasaur, Field Lab Earth, August Marquez 77, like to like things, mouse and weens, got science, UCS, varmints podcast, live underscore DB, uh, Jay Chapman live, space nerd 19, this week pod, dear grad student, dear grad student. Hey, by the way, here in the middle of the episode, you're going to hear a promo for dear grad student. Mission Spooky, Anthro Andro, Curiosity Cake, uh, Shaha Kebab, Shahab Kebab, that is killer, Shahab Kebab, uh, CM Manasvi, Better Than Human, Hallmark 2032, Astro Geek, there's more. Oh, we're not done yet. Cure M E C F S, Bell Noah, Annie E. Mason, Strange Nat Pod, Mary's Cove, uh, Tawny, A Tawny Ames, I was going to try to read that as three words, Tawny Ames, M. Grimm 1, Restoration Pod, C.O. Galaquire, uh, Ph.D. Exhausted, uh, H.Tar 1, Catherine M. Parsley, Mara McDonough, Alino Tabit, Boring Books Pod, Daniela Liebick, Jason Roy Price, um, Amina L. Uh, uh, Amina L. Payne, 
Um, and Bendy Scientist. My goodness. So I'm sorry if I had to do a couple of takes to get yours right. And I think when I said 30 to 60 seconds, I really meant like two minutes. But whatever. I'm not sorry. Because I appreciate all of you commenting in here. If you listened through all of that, you're like a super fan, right? You're like a super listener of the Planthropology Podcast. And I love you for that. I do. I love you dearly. All right. So that's all. We're jumping into Plants and World Traditions. Drink up in five, four, three, two, one. Here's some music. Okay. Hey, so this could be a very long episode. Um, a lot of times I don't take notes for these. You know, I just kind of shoot from the hip, especially with some of the um, interview shows. Because you know what? I just like to kind of kind of see where it goes and go with the flow of the episode. But in this case, I there's so much here and there's so much like rich history of how we process plants into drinks and how they work into our cultures and our traditions and our lives that it was really hard to like just be like, okay, I'm just going to go for this. So I actually have like three pages of notes for this. So I'm hoping this episode is not two hours long and I'm hoping that if it is that you listen to it all because I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So I've broken this down based on people's responses of what their favorite drinks are and just kind of about, you know, how we tend to use plants in beverages into four basic categories. So we're going to talk about the stimulants, the alcohols, the healthy choices, and the sugar apocalypse. Um, which may date back a little bit farther than you think. We've been drinking sugary, sugary beverages for, for quite some time. So um, there'll be a couple of extra shout outs in here of people that when they listed things, listed things that I hadn't heard of. So it was kind of fun for me to get to research them. Also, I'm going to be trying to pronounce names of um, drinks and products and things from all over the world. And I did my best to try to look up pronunciation of a lot of these things. But, you know, there's probably a few that I whiffed on. And so I hope you'll forgive me for that. And if you know the better pronunciation, uh, please let me know. And I'd, I'd be happy to like put in a correction or something. But I'm going to try my best and I'm going to try my best to, you know, honor the traditions that these drinks come from, as always, as best as I can. Um, so, Again, thank you to everyone who's contributed to this episode. There's a lot that has gone into it, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So we're going to start off by talking about the stimulants. The top two answers out of the 40 or 50 or so that I got were coffee and tea. Now, there were different ways that people approach that. Um, I think iHeartVegan said that uh, they like a soy latte as bitter as they are, which is really just the most fantastic answer. Um, but a lot of y'all said that you love coffee and you love tea. And I'm right there with you. You know, we actually on a, a recent episode talked about caffeine. It was on the last one. And we looked at uh, caffeine in different world traditions over time. So it turns out a lot of effort over time and a lot of culture has gone into trying to figure out how to stay awake. And some of the more popular stimulants that keep us awake, now I'm not talking about like um like, like drugs or different things like that, different but but in in the sense of drinks, coffee and tea are the two most popular stimulants all over the world still today. And they have been for hundreds or thousands of years. Now coffee uh as I mentioned before, is is my favorite. I drink probably dangerous amounts of coffee on a day-to-day -day basis, and I really enjoy it. Um, some people, I think, think that they don't like coffee or they don't. I mean, okay, it's okay to not like coffee, right? I'm not judging you for that. But a lot of times... We don't we don't really taste the flavors in coffee because we cover it up with milk and sugar and pumpkin spice, God help us, and all kinds of other things. But there is so much variation in the flavor of coffee from one location to the next, from one um, soil type or one uh, type of tree or, or variety to the next, that um, 
coffee is is really rich in its history and it's rich in the way we consume it. Um, everything from the temperature of the water to the way that it's ground and the way that it's brewed has a massive impact on the flavor of the coffee. So again, that's super common. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on coffee again, because I spoke about it in the last episode. So definitely go back and check that out. I talk about it a lot more and in a lot more detail. But cultures all over the world for, again, hundreds or thousands of years have consumed coffee on an almost daily basis. Uh, Coffee has a large amount of caffeine um, of the things that we drink and of the stimulants we take. It has um, probably the most caffeine per volume or by volume. Caffeine is a central nervous system stimulant. It blocks chemicals in your brain that make you sleepy. And so even though your body may be exhausted, uh, you don't ever feel the sleepiness because caffeine is blocking those molecules and blocking them from binding to different receptors. So caffeine's great. It keeps you awake, but it produces a lot of lows and highs as that um, effect kind of wears off over time. So some people find that they can't drink coffee after a certain certain time of day or whatever, and that makes some sense. So tea is another choice that people make. Now, tea is also caffeinated, or most teas are, um, but it's a lower concentration. So you can drink a lot more tea in general or drink it later in the day without necessarily having that same rush of caffeine with the highs and lows and everything else. Now, tea has um, a history... That that's a little bit obscure, right? We think that it probably came from the Far East, from Asia, um, um, China, Japan, uh, other Asian countries. Even even some people think that they could have originated in uh, uh, India. But the the tea plant that is typically used, especially for green tea, Camellia sinensis, uh, the name suggests the sinensis, the, the species name, suggests that it comes out of the East. That it is probably a Chinese plant in origin. Now, does it matter? Meh, probably not that much um, because it was consumed widely across the East, again, from India to China. And then as the Europeans or the British moved through there and began to occupy some of those territories, began to trade, tea was brought back to England and it's become a major beverage there. So whether you drink black tea or green tea or flavored teas or really anything in between, it's a very common drink that a lot of people enjoy for a lot of reasons. Um, it has rich, complex flavors. Again, it does have some caffeine that keeps you awake, which is awesome. Um, but in general, tea is, is, uh, maybe not as popular in the United States, although a lot of people here still do drink it. Um, an interesting variant on tea, and it is tea, is matcha. So matcha is processed a little bit differently. So it comes from the same plant, Camellia sinensis, which is the, the plant that gives us green tea leaves, or the tea leaves used in green tea. But for the last month or so, the three to five weeks before these leaves are harvested, shade structures are put over the camellia plants and it's grown in shade for several weeks before harvest. Now that increases the theanine and caffeine content in the leaves. That's important for a lot of reasons. Like I said, um, tea doesn't tend to be incredibly caffeinated, but it can really punch up that caffeine content by growing it in the shade. Um, if there's less chlorophyll, the plant is putting less resources into filling chlorophyll into those leaves, or it's changing the concentration of chlorophyll in those leaves to try to account for the lack of sunlight. And that goes up to a point, and that happens up to a point, and then if it's in heavy enough shade, the the plant will also actually start to process out the chlorophyll and reduce, reduce the amount that's in the leaf. Because if that leaf can't photosynthesize, the plant doesn't really want to spend the money or so to speak, or the resources to produce that pigment. And so uh, it changes the composition of the leaf and it changes the concentrations of some of these compounds. So matcha is usually, again, after it's a the Camellia sinensis is growing in the shade for a few weeks. It is um, um, 
harvested, powdered. Um, it's either stirred directly into uh, milk or hot water, or sometimes it's also uh, processed through a tea bag like other types of tea leaves. It's really pretty interesting. And the flavor profiles change as the um, concentration of some of these compounds change as well. There are also other tea alternatives and uh, mixes that are pretty commonly used in the Far East, like uh, Mugicha, uh, Genmaicha, and Lapsang Suchong. So again, I'm sure I pronounced all of that wrong. Um, but it's popular in Japan and throughout Asia. And these different mixes are often mixed with green tea or served as an alternative to green tea. Um, uh, Mugicha, for example, is brewed caramelized barley tea. So it doesn't have the same caffeine and stuff that is present in green tea and in different types of traditional teas. And it's consumed pretty widely by children in Japan. It has, for my I've never had it, and someone commented um, uh, uh, on Twitter that that it was a, a favorite drink of theirs. So, uh, if you're listening to this, I would love to hear more about your experience. But apparently, it's almost more of a savory flavor than it is a uh, sweet flavor. It's high in tannins and other compounds, so it has lots of antioxidants. It probably regulates blood pressure and blood sugar and things like that, or it has the potential to. I'm certainly not making any medical claims here. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting alternative to tea. It turns out we can essentially boil anything and make a tea out of it. It's not always a good idea, but it's something we can do. Uh, cacao is a, another interesting one. Okay. So this, this one actually came, there's a, a product called Creo Brew, Creo, Creo, I'm just going to leave this in. Creo Brew. Um, can you tell I'm tired as I'm recording this? And thanks to Wifey from the Chicken Mind Nuggets podcast for talking about this. And so I looked into this a little bit, and this is similar to a lot of the ways that early peoples, um, uh, especially in in the Americas, in South America, the uh, the Maya, the Olmecs, they would consume uh, cacao or chocolate in this way. And so, uh, a Creo brew is ground cacao or flaked cacao that's brewed similarly to coffee. You brew it the same way. Um, you can do it in your coffee machine, actually, or it can go directly into, you know, your cup like you would do with some different types of roast or uh, brew methods of coffee. Um, what's interesting about cacao is there is a little caffeine in it. It's, you know, if if coffee is 95% caffeine, cacao is like, um, or cacao beverages are like 15%, 10%, very low caffeine content. What they do contain, though, is a compound called theobromine, which I think we talked about last time as well. Now, theobroma uh, cacao is the you know, genus, species, the scientific name that literally means food of the gods or drink of the gods. So theobromine is this compound that acts as a stimulant, keeps you awake, and uh, is very, very similar to caffeine in structure. Uh, if you look at the molecule, it's pretty much the same, except it's missing one methyl group, um, which is CH3. And uh, that actually turns out to have a huge impact on the way that it functions within the body. I mentioned earlier that caffeine is a central nervous system stimulant. So, it it goes directly to your brain and affects the way that your brain processes chemicals. Um, theobromine in opposition to that is actually a vasodilator. So, it expands your blood vessels and it gives you better blood flow um, and as such probably reduces blood pressure. Um, but it gives you more oxygen to different parts of your body by dilating your blood vessels. Um, because of that, you don't get that instant, like super fast high. It kind of takes a little bit longer for theobromine to work in your system, but it potentially lasts quite a bit longer than caffeine. Uh, because of the way it works, it doesn't metabolize out quite so quickly. Um, what's interesting is you've probably heard that chocolate's bad for dogs, and it is, right? Or it can be. Um, one of the reasons chocolate 
can be bad for dogs, especially dark chocolates, is because of theobromine. They don't metabolize quite the same way we do, and they can't metabolize this out of their system. So it can lead to, because of the consistent uh, vasodilation, from what I understand, uh, renal problems, so kidney problems, heart problems, all of that, because they cannot process it out. So these effects go on and on and on, and uh, it can lead to a lot of neurological and cardiovascular problems in dogs. And so it's not the only thing about chocolate that's bad for your dogs, but it is a major source of poisoning in our canine friends. So that's an overview of some of the stimulant drinks we drink. Uh, I should also mention that this is probably... Not not probably. This is an abbreviated list of all of the things I'm talking about. This episode could have been four hours long, or I could have done a whole series on it. But um, I just, you know, as I was doing some research over the past week, just finding some things that I thought were pretty interesting, and I'm adding them in here. I also, again, have talked about a few of the things that that y'all mentioned, and I, I again, I so much appreciate y'all being involved in the production of this. So, We've talked about the stimulants. Let's move on to the depressants, the things that make us sleepy or make us talk too loud in a bar and and tell people we love them and give big hugs or yell angrily or do all kinds of weird things. We're going to talk about the alcohols. So you may be thinking alcohol has been around forever and you would really be right. Um way before uh, humans were really doing all the human-y human things that we think of today, uh, fruits were fermenting, right? All over the place, on forest floors, um, uh, under trees, and I'm sure a lot of those things were consumed. Um, funny story about, about alcohols, there is a um, tree disease, it's sort of a disease, called um, slime flux, which sounds gross, and it kind of is. So you'll get this uh, bacterial infection in your tree or this bacterial uh, colonization of a tree. And um, after a big rainstorm, as that tree uh, starts to take up tons of water, these bacteria, but with their you know byproducts, they're producing sugars and gases and all kinds of other things, um, you get like this weird leaky um, stuff. It's, 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 it's foamy, it's slime flux is actually a pretty accurate description of it. You know, it's well named. Uh, but it starts to kind of leak down your tree. So you may see some dark stains on your tree, especially uh, in a site where a branch might have fallen off or have been pruned off or something like that. And um, this is actually an alcoholic compound. And sometimes squirrels will drink it and they will get drunk. And then they'll fall asleep under the tree. And it's really funny. Um, we used to have a big lace bark elm outside of our plant science building at Texas Tech. That tree came down when they expanded the building. It was mostly hollow when they took it down and, and for a variety of reasons. But this tree also had slime flux. So you would see squirrels like just chilling under this tree, especially after a big rainstorm. Because they would, you know, drink the alcohol and they would get drunk. So drunk squirrels are actually really funny. Um, uh, sometimes your drunk roommate's funny too. Um, I have a, a couple of stories that I won't tell on a podcast uh, because I'm, I don't know if my roommates, my old roommates listen to this or not, but I'm just going to err on the side of caution here. <clears throat> so the production of alcohol has probably been around for more than 13,000 years. Uh, residue of an ancient beer inside a container um, that dates back about 13, 14,000 years has been found, um, I think, in a cave near modern-day Haifa, so in Israel. And it was probably something that was used at the time for some kind of a religious or cultural um practice, uh, whether it was a, a funeral or some other kind of ritual, the, this, this old beer, this ancient beer was probably used in that. And I believe it was a barley beer, actually, which most of the earliest ones were. So, um, I've just picked a few different types of like alcoholic beverages to, to cover, uh, because they are mostly plant based and they're things that we still produce and they're still part of the, uh, greater agriculture and horticulture industry in 
2021 or whatever it is year it is that you're listening to this. Um, so wines are one of the biggest ones. And throughout the world, wine is a high dollar, um, very uh, sought after and very widely produced um, beverage product. Uh, grapes are grown all over the world. And in fact, so I live in, in Lubbock, Texas, up here on the southern high plains of Texas, and um, or of the United States in Texas. And we are one of the biggest grape growing regions in the state. Now, if you know anything about Texas, or if you've spent any time here, you've probably heard that the Texas Hill Country is like wine capital. And that's probably true. They produce a lot of great wines down there. But about 85% of the grapes crushed in the state of Texas come from the 50 miles or so around where I'm sitting. Uh, our climate is very conducive to the growing of grapes. We have hot, dry summers. Um, we don't deal with some of that, which builds great sugar content. Content into the fruit. We're going to do an episode sometime about wine, produ- about grapes and wine production on the high plains. Uh, so don't you worry; it'll be interesting. Um, but also, uh, we don't deal we don't deal with some of the disease issues that um, grape growers in other parts of the nation or other parts of the world deal with because of our climate. So, uh, grape wines probably date back to somewhere between 6,000 and 7,000 BC. Uh, records have been found from all over the world, um, of grape wines. Uh, one of the reasons for this is probably that because grapes ferment so quickly and as soon as they, uh, they'll ferment on the plant. Actually, they'll ferment on the vine. But if they drop off, if they hit the ground, they're fermenting very quickly. You can smell it if you've ever been through a, a vineyard that has some overripe grapes hanging out out there. And um, it's interesting when we talk about like, human development and anthropological development that there is some synchronicity uh, worldwide about the times that some of these different things were sort of invented or discovered, or at the very least, the times that they entered some sort of a historical record, whether that is through artifacts that we're finding today or a written language of some kind or oral traditions. um, We find that a lot of these things pop up around the same times in different parts of the world, which is very, very interesting. So grape wines, uh, again, are probably the most common but they're not necessarily the oldest. Uh, pulque, which is uh, an agave wine, sort of, was common in the Americas by the time, definitely by the time the Europeans arrived. Uh, but we don't really know how far back that goes. Um, some people think it was around the first century AD. Some people think those those types of agave wines were being made in the Americas considerably longer than that, hundreds or thousands of years longer, because there were peoples here for hundreds or thousands of years longer than that. And so uh, the indigenous peoples of the Americas would use things like uh, agave and honey and different things to produce um, different sorts of alcoholic beverages, usually what we would consider to be a wine. Um, rice wines, including sake and, and a few others, were common in the Far East as early as 7,000 BC in Japan and in China. Um, and we see some of that in India as well. Uh, and, and as we all probably think of when we think of ancient wines, y'all, the Greeks and the Romans really dug their wine. They were really into it. You know, uh, they had like, gods devoted to it, Dionysus and others. Um, there were festivals devoted to wines and um, the consumption of wine. Now, it may have been a little bit different than we think of it today. Some of the alcoholic content in some of these ancient drinks may have been a little bit lower in some cases and considerably higher in other cases. It just depends. What's interesting as I was doing research is that uh, drunkenness was considered, um, you know, cultural taboo or a sin in many of these uh, cultures across the world. So while alcohol consumption was common, uh, drunkenness was something that was been that's been frowned upon. Um, for thousands of years across cultures across the world. And it's probably because people do really freaking stupid things when they're drunk, right? And if you're trying to live in a society, people getting drunk and like taking their pants off is probably not great. We don't want that. 
you know, drunk driving was probably not the problem that it is today, um, but it still caused poor decision making. And if you're in a, especially an early society that's that's developing, um, you want to make sure that your people are doing things that they're supposed to do, and not like getting drunk and fighting and and riding, I don't know, horses. Nah, that's not weird. Riding horses isn't weird. What animal would be weird to ride? Like a tiger? You could probably ride a tiger for a very short amount of time, which is why you shouldn't get drunk and try to ride a tiger. Um, so wine traditions are common around the world and they're produced with uh, a lot of different fruits. Grape wines, again, were probably some of the earliest, but now you see wine production in all kinds of different fruits with all kinds of different fa- flavor profiles, etc. And, you know, it, it's, it's common now to see that worldwide. Um, moving on to beer. So barley beers which again were some of the first ones before hops were common, uh, became common around the same time as wine. So we're thinking somewhere in that 6,000 to 7,000 BC range. Uh, But it was common in several parts of the world from from Northern Europe into Russia, uh, ancient Egypt. In fact, evidence of a brewery that could produce, you know, as much as about 300 gallons of beer per day was found in Hierakonpolis. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong as well. But that was a neat, that was a Greek name for uh, an ancient Egyptian city. And uh, they found this brewery. And it was, I mean, clearly set up as a brewery. And they think that it could have produced 300 gallons of beer per day. It's a lot of beer. And uh, that that consumption was common throughout Egypt and um, even farther into the east in uh, Greece, in India, throughout Africa. And eventually, um, it made its way into Europe. Um, fruit beers, which became ciders and things like that, also became popular. Um, similar to beer in some ways, at least in the way it was consumed, was mead. Uh, so mead was commonplace in ancient Greece by about 2000 BC. And it's a honey wine. So they, it's, it's fermented honey and water. Typically, this had a much lighter flavor than a lot of wines, a much lower alcohol content. And so it was consumed in a similar way to beer, probably more regularly uh, with several meals um, a day in some cases. Sometimes it was probably diluted with extra water, but it was fairly common for peoples from um, Greece all across Europe into Northern Europe. Uh, you know, I think we talk, when we talk about mead, we tend to think a lot of times of the Norse and of Vikings and ales and meads and things like that. Um, but in general, it's not relegated just to Europe. We see it in Asia. We see it in the Americas. Again, uh, honey wines were pretty common uh, throughout parts of the Americas. Now, they probably they weren't called mead. Uh, but again, we see a little bit of cultural synchronicity as we um, look at the way that a lot of these things developed. I think it's really, really fascinating. Um, Now, hard liquor. Hard liquor is a whole other thing because it takes a little bit more technology to produce a hard liquor because it has to be distilled. Although distillation probably dates back to the first century AD in terms of drinks and maybe 1200 BC or earlier in terms of perfumes. So the process of distilling fragrances uh, was an Egyptian and, and um, an Egyptian practice as well as a practice in the East. Uh, and that dates back considerably farther. But for consumption, probably the first distilled beverage or distilled liquid that humans consumed in some way was distilled water. Um, it was a way of safening water. And essentially how distillation works is uh, a liquid is heated, the vapors are um, collected, and then Recondensed back into a liquid. What that does is strips out a lot of the impurities. It cleans water. You can make a solar still to purify water. Um, this is done in a lot of different places. Uh, that's how distilled water is made. Not through a solar still, but through you know uh, uh, either a pressure still or, or fired still, something like that. Um, but when we start to talk about 
distilled liquors, um, that's moving a little bit further in time, probably around the 12th century is when we really start to see distilled liquids, liquors. It's the same process where the liquids are uh, heated until they boil and turn into into vapor. And then as that vapor condenses, the alcohol content goes way up uh, because a lot of the water and other things burn off and are not recaptured. So grape spirits were some of the first to be distilled because wines were common. Um around the 12th century. Now, this was common in a couple of places, but we see a lot of distillation happening in uh, India and then into um, Europe. Turns out, as time went on, though, uh, things like wheat, barley, rye, potatoes were considerably cheaper than grapes and became common around the 1400s across Europe. Now, distilled spirits especially barley and wheat, so whiskeys and, and things like that, were thought to be a cure or a treatment for the Black Plague. So as more people started to consume that across Europe, it became more and more common to drink these hard liquors or these distilled spirits uh, in Europe. And now there's a wide variety. Countries have their own, like, uh, countries and even parts of the United States um, have their own, like, named um, type of distilled spirit, uh, whiskeys and bourbons and, uh, rye and all kinds of things, um, are, are very common across the world. And so, um, that starts back again to the distillation of, of, um, perfumes quite, quite a long time ago, uh, to the distillation of water and then eventually the distillation, uh, of spirits. One more that I was, uh, thought was pretty interesting that somebody brought up is called Stabentun. And, um, it's made from anise, uh, fermented honey and the nectar of Stabentun. It means, um, in, I believe, Olmec or, or, uh, the language of the Mayans and, and earlier in South America. Again, please correct me on this if I'm wrong. Uh, but it means vines growing on stone. And it comes from a plant called Christmas font. Christmas vine or Ipomea corambosa. So this is a morning glory or it looks very much like a morning glory, big trumpet shaped flower. Um, and the nectar from this plant was, uh, distilled with anise and fermented honey, again, a mead, uh, to make this drink. Um, because of the Ipomea, because of this morning glory, it probably had some sort of psychotropic, uh, effects as well. And so instead of just being a depressant like most other alcohols, it also had some kind of psychedelic tendencies for the user. So it was probably used pretty commonly in different types of rituals and things like that. And as the the Spanish settlers came, or not settlers, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, the Spanish conquistadors, the Spanish conquerors uh, came in and began exploring and destroying in some ways a lot of these uh, uh, native cultures, um, they integrated some of this into um, what they typically drank, and they added things to it to make it a little bit less potent. Um, so that's alcohols. So, so far, we've talked about things to keep you awake and things to make you sleepy or stupid. We're going to take a quick break. Um I'm going to tell you now to go ahead and go follow Plantropology in all of the places. And then uh, you're going to listen to um, a trailer for the Dear Grad Student podcast in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hi, I'm Alana, and I'm a fourth-year PhD student. I'm more than likely re-editing that manuscript for the 22nd time, or maybe I'm in my fourth Zoom meeting today. Who can tell? But mostly, I'm probably working on my podcast. It's called Dear Grad Student, and it's a podcast for grad students to celebrate, commiserate, and support one another through grad school. Each week, I interview other grad students and academics about their experience from imposter syndrome, psychom, dealing with mentors, racism in academia, or, you know, all the other joys that come along with grad school. Not a grad student? Maybe you're thinking about grad school. Maybe you just finished and you really want to reminisce about the painfully glorious days. Either way, I think you should come check it out. You can find the podcast at deargradstudent.buzzsprout.com, twitter.com slash deargradstudent, or on your favorite podcast app. New episodes are posted every Monday. And until next time, warmest regards, best wishes, sincerely, Alana.
Okie dokie. We're back. I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you'll go listen to Alana at the Dear Grad Student Podcast. It's really, it's one of my favorite shows. It's awesome. If you've ever been in grad school, it's a thing you should go listen to. If you're thinking about grad school, it's a thing you should go listen to. Okay, we're going to move on. So we've talked about stimulants. We've talked about alcohols. Now we're moving on to the healthy choices. Now, healthy may need to go in some air quotes here because I don't just mean things that are legitimately super healthy because a lot of these things have not been really tested well or validated in terms of their health effects, but things that are thought of to be healthy, like fruit juices. So, The origins of drinking fruit juices can be kind of hard to pin down specifically. Um, But we think, I use the word we pretty liberally here. I hope you've caught on to that. It is thought, let me say that differently, that maybe um, as early as ancient Egypt and Samaria, there may be some evidence of use of fruit juices where different fruits were taken and mashed into pulp. That pulp was mixed with water and it was consumed that way. Uh, a lot of the early ones were probably things like lemonade or uh, orangeade or pomegranateade or whatever, uh, where the fruit juice was mixed with water, some kind of a sweetener was added and they were consumed that way. Um, Some of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in the Mediterranean uh, discuss in some ways mashing things like pomegranates and figs for juice as early as about 150 BC. Um, The Torah and the Old Testament um, discuss uh, the blood of the vine, which means grape juice. Okay, so uh, a a lot of that really dates back a long way. And in, in in fact, some of the um, uh, biblical accounts of, like, say, Noah, after the 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 story of the flood, uh, Noah was said to have become a farmer and planted a vineyard, vineyard, and then have become drunk. Some people think maybe because it was the weight of um, what he had experienced <laughs> through the flood, or or whatever else. But um, we have early records of uh, people making fruit juices. Um, into grape juice, and then that grape juice into wine and things like that. Uh, Again, grapes are a big theme throughout human history, right? And they're typically thought to be to be pretty healthy fruit juices. Although, you know, if you really start looking into it, it may be, you know, juicing has become kind of a big thing. And I think it's, or it was for a while, and it may have fallen out of uh, popularity. But sometimes, as we make fruit juices, and as we destroy the pulp and strain out the pulp of different fruits, we lose some of the potential health effects. A lot of the antioxidants and a lot of the nutrients that we try to get are actually in different parts of the fruit. They're t- they're bound up in the skin or in the pulp itself and not just in the juice. So we may be losing some of the potential benefits of eating fruit, all the nutrients we get from it, by juicing them, which is kind of interesting to think about. Now, I like fruit juice. But a lot of times there's a lot of sugar added to the fruit juices we typically drink. And that's not necessarily great. Um, a couple of other things that are thought to be fairly healthy are things like rose hip tea or hibiscus tea. I think those are uh, common. The hibiscus tea is far more um, common around the world than rose hip tea probably is. But have you ever seen the fruit of a rose? No, it's a poem, uh, because roses or the family rosaceae, uh, also contains things like apples and pears. So the structure of a rose hip or the fruit of a rose kind of looks like a cross between an apple and a pear and, uh, maybe a quince, something like that. You cut it open, it has big seeds inside, but it has sort of a tart, uh, interesting flavor. But you can make tea out of it, um, and it has sort of actually a similar flavor to hibiscus tea. Some people have compared it to cranberries. It has some tartness, but it's high in antioxidants. Uh, some people claim that it can help with inflammation and things like that. I don't really know. Again, I'm not a doctor, or I'm not that kind of a doctor. Uh, but I have had both of these, and they're both delicious. At the very least, they're not bad for you, right? Like uh, all those antioxidants antioxidants and stuff are are 
going to help you. They're they're good in your system. You know, where you have to be careful is adding a lot of extra sugars and things like that. Um, one other thing I, I looked into or a couple other things I looked into thinking about some of the healthier or even quote unquote healthier beverages out there. Um, one of them is milk substitutes. Now, I drink milk. I can tolerate lactose. So, I'm happy about that because I enjoy milk and chocolate milk and ice cream and cheese and what else? Just butter and all the other things you can get from milk. Um, but milk substitutes have become a big business and they're not really new. Uh, m- milk substitutes were consumed all over the world, um, um, from Asia to South America for thousands of years. So things like almond milk, soy, coconut, oak, oak, no, not oak, oak milk is not a thing, oat, rice, hemp, macadamia, cashew, and even mushroom-based chocolate milk. There's all kinds of things that um, make a milk or a milk-like substitute beverage. Now, we can argue if you would like. I don't really want to. Uh, but we could argue if you like about what constitutes a milk. Does a milk have to come from a mammal? Uh, can it be something that is squeezed out of an almond or out of an oat or from rice? I don't really care ultimately that much. I like some of these. I like coconut milk quite a bit, actually. I am not a fan of soy milk. Soy kind of gives me a headache. Uh, I also like almond milk and oat milk. I've never had hemp milk. That sounds... I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that one. Um, but the fact is, if you enjoy milk or using milk in your coffee or your tea or whatever else, or to cook with or to drink or to whatever, uh, and you can't tolerate lactose, you have a lot of other options. Now, jury's still out in some ways about if these are actually healthier for you or in what ways they may be healthier for you if they are. Most of them are lower calorie, um, but they may be missing some of those uh, fats and proteins that we do get out of dairy. So if you're into milk substitutes, you have a lot of options. They're not necessarily my thing, but you know, I think it's cool if you like those things. Uh, Another one that was interesting that I am not so much into is kombucha. Kombucha. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, man. It's, it's all right. It's all right. I've drank it. It's been okay. I'm not a huge fan. So, Kombucha is actually a Japanese word that means kelp tea, but the kombucha that you drink today is not kelp tea. That was probably appropriated as it moved into China and into the West by people that spread it that way um, because they thought it was a fermented tea, even though it was just kelp tea. So um, kombucha, as we think of it today, is a fermented tea. Um it's fermented with this fungus called Medusomyces gisevii. Uh, again, probably pronounced that wrong. Um, but it's thought to originate in China, Russia, Eastern Europe, possibly as long as 2,000 years ago. What's really interesting is um, it's made by fermenting sugared tea using this Medusomyces and uh, along with a culture of bacteria. In fact, it uses a symbiotic culture of bacteria in yeast, often called a SCOBY, which kind of looks like a slimy hockey puck. And I think it's super gross to look at. And I try not to. I try not to look at it. I don't want my coasters to be that way. If I want to drink, if I'm going to set my drink on it, I want it to be solid. Some people actually take the SCOBYs and dry them down and make like seamless clothing, which that weirds me out a little bit. But you know what? To each each their own. I think that's fine. Um, But the SCOBYs are formed and it ferments the tea and gives you this sort of effervescent bubbly um, beverage that we drink today as kombucha. Uh, It's flavored pretty commonly with different fruits and different things like that. Um, It's very, very acidic. It has a pH of about 3 to 3.5, which can cause some problems in your body if you drink too much of it. And it claims a wide variety of largely unsubstantiated health benefits. Now, if you're out there and your your hackles are going up because you're a kombucha fan, I don't care. 
I, I really don't. I mean, drink your kombucha. Do what makes you happy. You live your best life. But home brewers do need to be careful because these bacterial cult- cultures or these scobies can also um, attract bacteria and yeasts and fungi that are not so great for you um, that can cause liver damage and kidney damage and all kinds of other cardiovascular issues. So if you're making your own um, kombucha, make sure it's clean, make sure there's no contamination, or you could really uh, cause some problems for yourself. If you're into it, maybe it's something you should you should buy or make sure you're really doing a good job of sanitizing your equipment that you're using to ferment this. Um, so those are some some at least healthy or options that are thought to be of or that are thought of as healthy. And I think it's, you know, there's nothing wrong with any of these. I drink a lot of these fruit juices, uh, hibiscus tea, some of these milk substitutes and not kombucha if I can help it. Um, I would rather just drink water. Uh, it weirds me out. I don't know. It's a it's a brain thing, right? It's my brain can't get over it a little bit. Um, but then we move on to our last category, the sugar apocalypse. The sugar apocalypse. Uh, <laughs> so in this one, I put quote unquote fruit juices because the fruit ju- juices of yesteryear when uh, it was fruit and water and you consumed it, uh, or if it was just squeezed fruit, because they have a lot of water in them, that's not really what we get today. Not very often. So when you go to the store and you buy a fruit juice, they are heavily sugared. There's lots of sugar added in to make it taste like something you want to drink, especially in the West. Uh, We tend to very much like very, very sweet things. And the more we drink sweet things and eat sweet things, the more we want our things to be sweet. And so the sugar content of a lot of these beverages goes higher and higher and higher. And like a bottle of orange juice that you buy sometimes has as much um, sugar in as like a Coke. And actually, so they, they do some interesting marketing things that I don't think work like intended. So there was this whole thing going around for a while that was like a can of Coke. One can of Coke has the same amount of sugar as six donuts. And I'm like, rad, I'm just going to eat six donuts and not drink the Coke, and I'll be totally fine. And I don't think that's what they really meant to get across, but that's how my brain interpreted it. Um, but modern fruit juices maybe are not as good for you as they think they as you think they are. So a lot of people will actually t- treat them as a concentrate. We do that for our son. Uh, we He drinks a lot of apple juice or apple mango juice, but we typically treat it like a little bit like a concentrate. And we'll kind of cut it with water before we give it to him. Um, because there is so much sugar in these drinks uh, that they're not they're not great. Not great. So if you're going to drink fruit juice, maybe that's an argument for being like having your own juicing thing, juicer, juice extractor, juice extraction apparatus um, to make fresh fruit juices. Because if it comes straight from the fruit, it's probably you're probably a little bit better off than buying something that is pre-mixed and sugared. Um, Chocolate based drinks. So, again, these are very different today than early cacao drinks. So what we think of today as chocolate, again, at least in the West, our brains tend to go to milk chocolate, right? Which is a little bit of cacao mixed with milk and like obscene amounts of sugar. And it's delicious. I like milk chocolate. But probably what they would drink in the past was light, very lightly sweetened dark chocolate flakes or cacao flakes uh, that were heated or served iced or whatever else. But like hot chocolate and other chocolate-based beverages, chocolate milk, I love chocolate milk, by the way. I do, um, are, are very popular today. And again, they're very sugary and they're not great for you, but uh, I don't I don't want to send the message. So here's a message I want I don't want to send is that you shouldn't have things. Have the things that make you happy. Um, I think life is far too short for us to spend all of our time agonizing about what we are or aren't eating or drinking. Have the things that make you happy, but maybe practice some moderation. And uh, if it becomes a problem for you, cut back, right? I used to drink so much soda, it was just absurd. Like, I would have like three Cokes or three Dr. Peppers a day. That's not good. That's real bad. And so, like, for me, it was a problem. It was something that I struggled with, so I kind of cut soda out of my diet. Every now and then I'll have one, and I feel like hot garbage, but I'm happy while I'm drinking it. Um, So, 
I'm not trying to tell you you shouldn't have these things. I think you should just be careful. Um, this one, this next one, uh, a couple of people um, talked about it, but uh, Aura Vivas at Vivasaur was one person that said that they like horchata. Um, this was a, this has a really interesting history. I think you should look a little bit into the history of horchata. Uh, it dates back to probably the 13th century Valencia, which is a free state in Spain or in modern Spain. Um, and it's traditionally made from sweetened tiger nuts, not the animal. There's that, there's a lot of reasons tigers are dying out, but horchata is not one of them. Um, tiger nuts come from Cyperus esculentus, which is a sedge. It's a sedge and it's very similar to nut sedge. So if you've ever tried to like manage a lawn and nut sedge comes up, some people call it nut grass. It's actually a sedge has a triangular stem. That's how you know the difference between a sedge and a grass. Grasses are flat. Um, and sedges have three corners like someone's hat. My hat, it has three corners, three corners has my hat. Anyway, um, so sweetened, uh, Cyperus esculentus tiger nuts were made into horchata in Spain and in Western Africa. Uh, it's a sweetened drink oftentimes has cinnamon and other things. And it's actually really good. Uh, it's used as a flavoring and other things like, uh, ice creams and, uh, lattes and things like that. It's not super sweet. It's not as sugary as some of the other things in this section, uh, but it is more of a, I put it here under the sugar apocalypse, uh, because it's more of a, a thing that we just drink as like a dessert or uh, I, I don't want to say like a leisure drink. That's weird to say, um, but it's something that's not like supposed to be healthy or to wake us up or to uh, give us the courage to ask someone to dance. Uh, it's just something we drink for fun right? It's fun and it's enjoyable. Um, and in the Americas, uh, there's other versions of horchata, uh, which are rice-based in general. So, uh, flavor profiles and the way it's consumed is similar, but, um, it was tiger nuts in, in, um, Spain and Western Africa and rice in the Americas. So the last thing I'm going to cover is the dreaded soft drinks, uh, a soda, or as we call it down here, everything's a Coke, and then they ask you what kind, and you say Dr. Pepper, and they say, is Pepsi okay? And you say no. That's how it works. That's how Cokes work. Um, they date back actually to the late 1600s. Carbonated beverages or soft drinks have been around a lot longer than I think most people probably think. Uh, most early soft drinks were AIDS. Again, like uh, lemonade or um, something similar to that. Uh, um, grape aid sounds weird, but I mean, that was probably an early one too, because grapes are fairly readily available. Um, and what other, other kinds of fruits, uh, they would make a juice, they would, um, mix it with some water, they would sweeten it, and then they would carbonate it. Um, there's different ways to carbonate a beverage, but it was intended to in imitate some of these bubbly effervescent waters that came from certain natural springs. It was something that the wealthy, uh, thought of as, uh, enjoyable, which is probably still still true. I'm looking at you, Topo Chico. And uh, they would use CO2 to, to carbonate all of these different soft drinks. And most of them, again, were fruit juices early on. Um, there, there's different ways. They would heavily chill the liquid, cascade it over plates with pressurized CO2. Probably early on, they would bubble the carbon dioxide up through the liquid and then trap it at the top. Um, but but um, carbonated soft drinks have been around for four or 500 years. It's pretty cool. Um, it got to be a much bigger problem when a lot of the heavy syrups um, using corn syrup and different things to flavor it became more popular in the last 100, 150 years or so. Um, the sugar content went way up. There were other preservatives and stuff that are used in a lot of modern sodas that are not great for you and that were probably not found um, in early versions of a lot of these drinks. So, uh, you know, maybe use our sugar apocalypse beverages with care. Definitely use the alcoholic beverages with care and the stimulants. So maybe stick with the healthy ones. I don't know. Everything in moderation, y'all. Uh, be smart with the things you drink and with the things you eat. Um, but 
I have said a lot of words to you over the past hour or so about drinks, and I hope some of them stuck in your brain. Uh, there is so much out there about this subject. Um, I've come across mountains of research uh, about how all of this came about and how uh, it relates to our societies. Um, and it, it's, it's been fascinating studying and learning about this. So I hope you enjoyed it a little bit. I enjoyed making it. I'm sorry it's so late. Although if you're listening to this at some future date, it's right on time but if you're right listening to it this week on friday uh february 26 2021 i'm sorry it wasn't out on tuesday but um y'all are the best i enjoy doing this for y'all every time i do i love this show i love talking to y'all i have the best community i think um uh, on my twitter page at planthropology underscore um you can find me on instagram facebook check out the planthropology's cool plant people facebook group um i'm on tiktok as at the plant prof Uh, i have four people that like my videos and i appreciate every four of you every four all four of you thanks so much to the texas tech department of plant and soil science for supporting the show and being so awesome in just letting me do this uh thanks to those of you who support on patreon um your donations mean the world to me and they help me uh make sure that the show gets better every time if you'd like to support on patreon hit up patreon.com slash planthropology no pressure to do that for a very small amount of money a dollar uh you can get in on helping support the show um Y'all the best. Y'all are the very best. I think you were very awesome. So actually, it's Friday. There's another episode coming out on Tuesday. I'm going to get back on schedule. So lots of planthropology coming at you. I hope you have a lovely weekend or a lovely whatever day it is for you. Uh, Keep being cool, and I'll talk to you next time.